Peter has spent the first uh, four verses of chapter 1 establishing that our faith stands on the work of Christ. And as a result, we have divine power. This is through the indwelling Christ, and this is to exhibit his moral excellence. Do that by refusing the temptations of our own flesh, of the world, and of the devil. So God has outfitted us with all that we need to live a life of obedience to him. And that is in opposition to what the false teachers were saying, is that you need this vision, that experience, and whatever it is that they were peddling. So this section serves as a rebuttal to them. Okay? They were also negating the importance of the material world, which said you can go ahead and indulge yourself. Uh, with sensual pleasure because it isn't going to matter. And what Peter is saying is character does matter and it's a fruit of Christ in you. And so he brings some specificity to this in verses 5 through 9. Starts with faith, ends with love. And then you have characteristics in between. And each characteristic seems to relate to one another. It's not in any strict sequential order. Uh, but I think it gives a picture of a full-featured moral life as one relies upon the indwelling Christ. These are not self-generated, uh, and they're certainly not done to give glory to man. So let's take a look at our passage. Let's all stand. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he, has cleansed, he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I've done two funerals this week, and when uh, you do that, it has a tendency to make you think about death some, and also to think about what people will say about you when you die. You ever think about that? What will be said at your funeral? Now, I've heard some people speak at a funeral, and you think, all right, I don't think they're talking about the guy I knew in the casket, right? Let's just be honest. Sometimes it seems like they're whitewashing what took place, like false advertising. Had the sad occurrence of doing people that have committed suicide. And I've always thought, even in a case like that, you need to speak to that. That's an opportunity to say, this person should not be judged by their last act. Because there are people needing hope at a time like that, right? Being a part of Keith Rasher's funeral, one of our missionaries who died last week, I was struck by how inspiring it was for this man's character and his resolve for the sake of the gospel. And the numerous stories of, as an 11-year-old, an Arian Jaya, walking through a swamp with his brother, and his brother was smaller than him, 
and a giant python is right there in front of his brother. His brother just froze. And Keith takes his slingshot and just starts banging that thing. And it finally slithers away. And he puts his brother on his back and they walk through. His brother couldn't swim. Walk through the swamp. That was some kind of story. Or in fact, he went spear fishing and had all the bloody fish around his ankle. And a shark, about a seven-foot shark, comes wanting that meal. And Keith throws the fish kind of his way and starts swimming back to shore. Then he gets upset that he did all that work, so he swims back <laughs> to get the stringer of fish with that shark there and got him and went back to the shore and got it safely. I mean, it's just incredible to think of all the things that this man did, to being a hostage negotiator in Chad. And all of this, all these experiences that God gave him were colored by his unbelievable integrity. Uh, he was really a maverick. He didn't listen uh, to what other people told him to do in terms of authorities. He was going by his own drum and started his own mission organization because he felt like that a lot of the missions were, were not being very effective, particularly in reaching the, the Muslim world. And he's built a movement of uh, training these incredible leaders. And it just made me think, well, what are people going to say at my funeral? What are they going to say at your funeral? I don't have any Python stories, but uh, I'd like to think that nobody has to lie when you speak of character, right? And then if we're not quite there yet, if we look at our lives and we feel like, man, you know, I just don't feel like I reached that standard, what needs to be done to get you there? What changes have to be made? These are fair questions. And maybe it's the reason why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to a funeral than a party because it makes us think about these things for this very reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So for this reason, for what reason? Well, in the previous verses where we talked about the divine nature in you. You have this indwelling Christ. And so we are to demonstrate this morally excellent character befitting of the divine nature in us. It's not that we're little gods, but we have this power that God has given us. And it almost seems contradictory for Peter to write about Christ in us and then to insert Make every effort. I mean, is that contradictory? The work, the power, the grace of Christ does not cancel out the effort it takes to live the Christian life. I've certainly been a Christian for a majority of my life. And I can certainly attest to times where you feel like you are wrestling with yourself. You are saying no to the flesh, no to worldly temptations, no to Satan, just to get your mind set where it needs to be set. I understand that effort, but I also believe that God is the one who gives us the strength to say no to that. Believers are to work to apply all diligence, but it's still 
the work of God. I engage my will by saying no to the flesh and then by saying yes to Christ. Okay? I'm sure I, at this point, could give you, you know, seven secrets of living the spiritual life and all that. Okay? And I'm certainly not going to do that. It's hard. All right? It's some, sometimes it feels soul-quenching, the things that you have to go through, the, the trials that you go through. But I believe that God is there in the midst of that, and that he gives us the strength we need for whatever befalls us. But I still have to choose not to think certain thoughts, to think of who I am in Christ and what Christ has done for me, and then to choose the behavior that's befitting of Christ in me. Spiritual growth is not automatic. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, that involves some effort, right? Then, in the next verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's no incongruity here. It's a realization of our will saying yes to Christ, but Christ is still in us, empowering us. We're to draw upon the provisions in Christ to build a godly character in an ungodly world. Peter chooses some interesting words. He, he says the effort supplements our faith. It, it, it is a term taken from the Athenian theater. And it has to do with the production of a theater by a person who has a lot of money and they are paying for the funding of a play. The production. I mean, it's an expensive business to buy the equipment, to pay the actors, to produce the play. And the word signifies this generous cooperation. And so the idea is that a Christian must engage in this cooperation with God to produce characteristics befitting of the new nature in us. So we have everything already bought for us. We have all the equipment. And now we respond with obedience consistent with the power that God has provided. To not obey, to not produce godly character as a believer makes as much sense as having a play fully funded, fully produced, and then there's no activity up on the stage. The word Peter uses does not mean God has given us just enough to get by, but it points to a lavish generosity. No matter the circumstances, God has provided not the minimum, but exceeding all we need. And the result is we honor him with the highest of Christian character. Our will and the power of God are partnered in every act of obedience. It echoes the truth of 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says, when the Apostle Paul said, and we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes with the Lord who is the Spirit. Every act of obedience is a step of this transformation, one degree of glory to another. And the glory is we are being conformed into the image of Christ. There is an effort in saying no to the impulses of the flesh and yes to Christ. And notice, this all comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Both take place. Human volition and divine power. Peter then gets specific on what this is going to look like. And the first is faith. Simply put, the Christian trusts God for his salvation, and then he is to trust him for everything after that. He's to have confidence in God. That's not just a one-time thing, but it's to go on continually in our life. Faith does not exempt a man from works, and the grace does not, the grace of God does not absolve a man from effort. We find ourselves living in a world where, for instance, we are tempted with avarice, materialism, pride in our money. So we have to say no to spending our money to get everything we want, to stay within our means, to reject pride in our possessions. And that takes effort right? It takes effort to walk into, in contentment with God. And so faith is a daily choice to lean upon the resources that God has provided us. And by the way, don't forget, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will give you what? A way of escape. It's another way of saying he has given you everything you need in every circumstance. So faith is an act of my will to deny other suitors and to trust Christ. The ESV translates the next word as virtue. Other translations say goodness, and it means moral excellence. It means more than obedience to commands, although it means that, but it means more. The heart is engaged with the virtue. I mean, someone can feign an attitude or a, or a behavior, such as, let's say, humility. And sometimes you can just smell this. And it dissipates into something that is self-generated for self-glory. But moral excellence comes from, from the heart being submitted to Christ. It joyfully takes on these characteristics, like a, a beautiful robe that Christ gives us, and we wear these characteristics. Christ produces this with joy. Robert Coles, a former professor at Harvard, published an article titled, The Disparity Between Intellect and Character. The piece was about the task, I quote, of connecting intellect to character, and he admitted this task is daunting. His essay talked about an encounter with one of his students over the moral insensitivity of what 
um, she called the immoral behavior of other students some of the best and brightest at Harvard. He interviewed this young woman, a Midwestern, uh, with a Midwestern working class background, and she cleaned students' rooms to help pay for her um, tuition at Harvard. Uh, and she reported to Coles that people who were in classes with her treated her ungraciously because of her lower economic position. No courtesy, no respect. Some were rude, some were crude. She reported being propositioned for sex repeatedly by one young student in particular as she went about her work. And he was a man with whom she had two moral reasoning classes in which he excelled in the class and received the highest of grades. The pattern of treatment led her to quit her job, leave the school, and then she had a kind of exit interview with Coles. And she reviewed not only the behavior of her fellow students, but also the long list of highly educated people who have perpetrated the atrocities that the 20th century was famous for. She concluded by saying this, I've taken all of these philosophy classes, and we talked about what's true, what's important, what's good. Well, how do you teach people to be good? What's the point of knowing good if you don't keep trying to become a good person? It's a great question. The false teachers in Peter's day didn't much care about the inward character, the good character in a person. And religionists in our day really don't have a clue, other than through your own energy, to achieve that goodness. And many Christians have the power, but are not partaking of it. Peter writes this book for these reasons. After faith and virtue come knowledge. Any virtue must be informed with knowledge. The knowledge comes through the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word. It's a practical knowledge. It makes a distinction between what is true, what is not true, what I should do, what I should not do, um, what is encouraging, what is hurtful. Hebrews 5 says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I mean, there are some who claim to be led by the Holy Spirit while they eschew anything that would be considered intellectual knowledge. I remember talking to one pastor who over lunch told me, no, I don't, I don't worry about studying the Bible I just walk in the pulpit and let the Holy Spirit lead. I'm like, whoa, dude. Apparently you got a gift I don't have because i got to study. i got to spend hours trying to get it straight. Um, now, if we're talking about just knowledge alone, separated from Christian virtue, then yeah, that, that can lead to arrogance. That's not good. But there's nothing godly about ignorant Christians who choose not to know the word, who choose not to know the culture, who consider 
all education should just be a secular pursuit. Now, yes, the false teachers trafficked in false knowledge, but the cure for false knowledge is not no knowledge. Right? It's knowledge properly aligned with reality or with truth. Verse 6 continues, and knowledge with self-control. Along with knowledge, we are to pursue self-control. means one who can put a limiter on themselves, on their passions, on their behavior. means to not give in to fleshly desires. And in contrast to self-control, you have the false teachers in Peter's day. And if you go to chapter 2, this is what you read. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality and become of them the way, uh, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. This unrestrained sensuality in fantasy and in behavior Verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Every lustful thought that comes to them about sex, money, possessions, power, they're seen as right, natural. Just do what comes natural. And even today, if you were to say no to a sexual impulse, right? You're looked at like you just got off the Mayflower, right? How weird is that, right? So the culture is teaching us just be like a dog. Follow every urge. That's natural. So you're nothing more than an animal. But that's not the truth, and as human beings, we're to have, and as Christians, self-control, and God has given us a choice, not to abide every passion. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. No boundaries with marriage. Every person is a candidate for my insatiable desires. And then verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So they're in bondage to their own passions. And they cannot bring themselves to say no. Listen, any system which divorces any religious system that divorces a moral ethic from the religion is fundamentally devious. That's the record of Scripture. And it's a key feature to false teachers. For the time is coming... Now, listen. When I use the term false teachers, I am talking about major um, deviations from Orthodox Christianity. I'm not talking about somebody who disagrees with you, because I hear that term bandied about, uh, about anybody who disagrees with me, let's say about some charismatic experience or eschatology, all right? 
You just disagree. That's not false teaching, all right? But these are people who denied the gospel, denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. These are things critical to our faith, okay? So that's what I mean by false teachers. I think that's what Peter means. Anyway, he says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So I, I want friends, I want the people I listen to, I want my religious leaders to just tell me what I want to hear, right? Listen, some of my best friends can get in my grill and tell me what I don't want to hear and to challenge me. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, deny their own master and Lord Jesus Christ. Walter Wink was a biblical scholar, recently passed away, seminary graduate. His books were widely used within the large umbrella of Christianity, but it gave consent to all kinds of sexual immorality. He said, and I quote, the Bible has no sex ethic. It only knows a communal love ethic. In 1999, he published an article that distinguishes between sexual ethic and sexual mores, mores just being kind of a cultural thing. And he claimed that the Bible did not advocate any firm, absolute sexual standards, but only kind of giving us a cultural report for the moment. And he said, sexual mores are unreflective customs that fail to factor the circumstances of individual cases. And so those today who are advocates for, you know, adultery, same-sex, um, uh, not just attraction, but behavior, and anything else to satisfy fleshly desires, love this guy. They love this thing. I've had him quoted to me multiple times. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you I know what that man's spiritual standing is. I have no clue. I don't know his heart, all right? But I can attest to the instruction that falls within the category of false teaching and embraces following your passions. That's not cool. In addition to self-control, a person with Christ in them is to demonstrate steadfastness. It's a word also translated as perseverance. A literal rendering means to walk under the load. It's a temper of mind and of spirit, unmoved by difficulty and stress. Not, uh, not impacted. I, I think we're all impacted by it. But I'm not going to stay, uh, I'm not going to move off of my foundation. And we can exhibit this kind of perseverance when we have a clear picture of the future. Listen to what was said about Christ, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him were some of the results of his obedience that he would get to see in the future. It's the same for us. 
You know, in the ancient Greek Olympiad, there was a race called the torch race in which runners ran with torches raised above their heads. And it was not necessarily the first one over the finish line who won the race. It was the one who the first one to cross the finish line with their torches still lit. And endurance says, I want to finish with my torch still lit. I don't want to just finish, but I want to finish well. I want my heart still in intimate relationship with Christ. I want to still be faithful to the gospel, to God's word, like my friend Keith was. I want my character still intact. How sad it is to see some Christian leaders in the last chapter of their life just tube out. And you find their marriage was a sham. Or they were bedding down other people who was not their spouse. And it comes out after they die. I want my torch still lit. You know, and there are people who can put on a good show on the stage, right? It can be a heady thing. But behind the scenes, they can be a jerk to their staff. Their marriage could be problematic. The heart could be filled with jealousy and, and rage. That's a torch that is out. And I think there's an aspect to this that goes to our expectation for the Christian life. And this is especially true with kind of our media-driven Western society view of success, this kind of triumphalism that many within Christianity want to, you know, tout. And I think it all misses the mark. You know, somebody telling me, well, if you're sick, you just don't have enough faith. If you're poor, you don't have enough faith. If you're under this constant trial, there must be something wrong with you. You're not supposed to experience hardship. Uh, that's not the Christian life I'm familiar with. Listen to Romans. And I don't think it's the Christian life depicted in the Scripture either, all right? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, certainly that's a misprint. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. James 1, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The intended impact of testing is spiritual maturity. That is the completed result. And when the Spirit resides in us, He's interested and capable of energizing us for perseverance. But it's when we walk in the flesh that we lose interest in the relationships with God and the relationships with others. And we don't persevere. Godliness is the last virtue in verse 6. That means reverence and obedience. The godly person makes the kind of decisions that are right and noble. He lives 
by principle. Doesn't allow passions and pressures um, to control them. Doesn't take the easy path when tested. Does what is right because it's the, it's the will of God. And when a person lives by principle, little things are attended to. I was reading the other day of a person who said, you can tell a lot about a person's character by what they do with a shopping cart. Like, what? Well, do, do you put it back in the, you know, in where they store them, or do you just let it out in the middle of the parking lot? Certainly, godliness attends to details. But what you do with a shopping cart may be a little hyperbolic. You know, my mother-in-law used to say, you can tell a lot about a man's character by if he shines his shoes. Nothing wrong with shine shoes, but again, maybe a tad exaggeration about the benefit of those shoes. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a lot of Christian communities where there is, a, there is a, an overemphasis on subcultural practices and then ignoring plain scriptural characteristics that ought to be fruit of the Spirit in a person's life, Right? You know, like not drinking or not smoking that people get, you know, just so bent out of shape by that in some Christian communities. And then miss the other plain things. Listen, I would rather have a smoking Christian who loves his wife than a non-smoker who's a jerk. Okay? Now, the jerk may live longer, but... (laughs) I'd still take the smoker who loves his family well. The point is, is that false teachers gave little or no intent, uh, attention to a biblical ethic while touting their own doctrine. Peter is fusing the, the life, the behaviors, with the beliefs, the, the truth of the word. You know, false teachers can sometimes see the connection. As recently as five years ago, author and speaker Doreen Virtue was the world's top-selling New Age author. She enjoyed a phenomenally lucrative lifestyle, living on a 50-acre ranch in Hawaii. Her publisher treated her as a rock star, flying her and her husband first class to sold-out workshops around the world. She rubbed shoulders with celebrities. Virtue described her life and teaching this way. New Agers often view Christianity as having dogmatic rules, but they have their own rigid standards about what an enlightened person must and mustn't do. During my 20 years as a New Age teacher, I promoted techniques like positive affirmations, believing and teaching that your words create your reality. 
We held up our wealth and fame as evidence that our principles were true and effective. Yet despite this worldly success, we were unrepentant sinners who lived, mar lived lives marred by divorce and addictions. Having sold out workshops, standing ovations, adoring fans, and celebrity friends gave us swollen egos. I remember believing my every thought was a message or a sign from God or his angels. Wow. I wouldn't want you to know half the thoughts that go through my head, but to have a person think that. In January 2015, she was driving along a Hawaiian road while listening to the Scottish-born pastor, Alistair Begg. It was a sermon called Itching Ears, taken from 2 Timothy 4, where the Apostle Paul writes that in the end times, people will want their itching ears tickled by false teachers who offer false hope. I could tell he was describing people just like me. She said, God used Begg's sermon to convict me for the first time in my life. His words pierced my stony heart, and I felt ashamed of my false teachings. Then I read Deuteronomy 18. I encountered a list of sinful activities that included several I was practicing, such as divination, interpreting signs and omens, and mediumship. I was broken, deeply shamed, and humbled. I dropped to my knees in shame and sorrow. I'm so sorry, God, I kept wailing in repentance. I didn't know. On that very day, I gave my life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The decision had far-reaching consequences. Doreen and her husband left their fancy Hawaii home. Her New Age publisher ended their professional partnership. New Agers treated her as an object of scorn. Having to admit I was wrong to the entire world, my books were published in 38 languages, has been deeply humbling. Even so, I need that humility to better learn how to lean upon God. After seeking but never finding peace in new age, I have finally found it in Christ. End quote. Let's pray.